must have just begun. We live, don't we, in a world of crises. There will always be the worry that the storm out there will arrive with global warming or a crisis in Sudan or with Syria or Korea or Iran, that those crises will draw America in. Or the national crisis of a bombing in Boston or rising healthcare costs or college costs or the specter of joblessness or disease or disaster that some of those somehow are going to find their way to your door. So when you come to a text like this one and to Christmas Eve, if you were to be asked tonight, honestly, genuinely, really how safe, how peaceful do you feel this Christmas, I think a lot of us would probably say we are looking over our shoulder, that we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. When Isaiah wrote these words 700 years before Jesus was born, he was writing to people for whom the storm had just arrived. Perhaps you can imagine this, as Isaiah was writing, he could look over Jerusalem's battlements and take in the awful sight of the hordes, hundreds of thousands of Assyrian soldiers besieging the city of Jerusalem. I imagine them in my mind's eye like Sauron's army before Minas Tirith in the Lord of the Rings. They must have seemed utterly terrifying and utterly unstoppable. Well, that's the context for this Bible reading for Christmas real crisis had come home for these people. Now, what was the crisis? What is the crisis, I suppose we could ask, for us? Well, reading Isaiah, there's no doubt who had brought about this crisis as you read it, and there's no doubt upon whom the crisis was falling. Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And the darkness that Isaiah is describing is not primarily the darkness of an approaching international incident or approaching armies and invasion. Reading Isaiah 8, we can say, yes, the people were in anguish at what they were seeing, but the darkness was actually much older than that in Israel. It had come from a years-long practical rejection of God. See, as you read Isaiah, to a man and woman, Israel had consistently rejected all the pleas that God had made to them to walk in the light of the Lord. And in that respect, I think they were very much like us. It's not that they were consciously anti-God, they weren't. They were a good deal more religious and more outwardly engaged in good deeds than most of us are. It's just that they had told themselves that they would turn to God when they were good and ready. You see, they had practically rejected God. They were religious people who had no time, really, for the God they said they worshipped. And in our own way, if we're honest, we have to say that he gets squeezed out of our lives too, religious or not. You see, it was the chief crisis of their lives, and they never knew it. As perhaps we too might never understand that. Actually, this is my story growing up. Forty years ago, this Christmas Eve, you'd have found me in a school chapel, a choir boy among choir boys, singing like a little cherub. And when people told me I was angelic, I would have agreed. (laughs) But appearances can be deceiving. I didn't know the first thing about God. 
And God had to bring a crisis into my life, as he's had to bring it into many of our lives, to get our attention. So you have to see this in Isaiah. We're really not that different to these people, to the people of Isaiah's day. Christian or not, religious or not, this is your crisis, it's my crisis, it was their crisis, a real crisis, far above everything else. The crisis of the question, do you know the God who has made you? Do you know the God who knows you? Because practically, many of us day by day are squeezing him out. And then this question, how will the crisis be resolved? To whom will rescue come? There's a lie, isn't there, that we swallow, not just at Christmas, but throughout the year, that says the gifts we receive, we have earned. I was thinking about this last night, about one of my favorite Christmas movies, the theological masterwork, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Maybe, maybe some of you have studied it. At one point, those of you who know it and love it will understand this, it has two Muppets playing the ghost of Jacob Marley, warning Ebenezer Scrooge that he will be judged for the crimes of his life. And they sing this, doomed Scrooge, doomed for all time. Your future is a horror story written by your crimes. It's not particularly Disney. But there again, if you think about it, it is. Because if God's going to judge anyone, we think, who should it be? Well, it should be the really obviously bad people, like Ebenezer Scrooge. And not the good, nice people like us, right? But that's not what Isaiah says. That's not what the Bible says. None of that. Rather, it says here, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. How does God save? Who does God need to save? Well, Isaiah's reference, you may know, is to an event in Israel's history 500 years before that had been a total gift as a victory to those people who hadn't earned one ounce of saving. How did Israel defeat their enemy in the day of Midian? Well, the fact is they didn't, unless you credit people who attempt to overcome a vastly superior enemy by blowing trumpets at them as having done the job themselves. No, God did it. God did it as he's about to do with the Assyrians in Isaiah 9. God saved as he always saves because of his mercy to those who don't deserve it and can't help themselves. There's no other reason. And why then do people not walk in the light of the Lord? Well, Isaiah has been thinking about that. And in 8.21, he says this. It's not because they're especially bad people. It's because they have no dawn, he says. The light has not come into their lives. He has not brought it. He's not opened his revelation of the Bible to them. He's not shown them who he is. Which, if you think about it, means for the bad kids for those who never get off the naughty list on their own, for those who find themselves not walking but straying, not attending to but forgetting, not serving but rather destroying the purposes of God, here's the exceptionally good news. Your crisis with God is not going to be able to be solved by what you can do to fix it. There's nothing that you or I can do to make ourselves right with God. It will require action on His part. It depends solely on God working and on us coming to him in his mercy and asking him to give us the light, the dawn. 
And if rescue is God's coming to us in this way, well, how then do we receive it? Who will it come to? And who will it come by? I like the story of the six-year-old whose mother was giving her an educational version of the game Animal, Vegetable, Mineral. I'm thinking of a mammal, the little girl said. He's big and he does magic. Her mother racked her brain and then eventually gave up. It's Jesus, her daughter said. And her mother scolded her immediately for being irreverent and blasphemous. But the Bible tells us that's not blasphemy. It's simply the truth when it comes to Christmas. The word God himself became a human being. For to us a son is born, to us a child is given. And again, it's vital, isn't it, that we see the pronouns here. Who's saying this? Well, the very people who knew that they hadn't deserved this kind of gift. It's Isaiah saying this. To us, to us who haven't believed this, who haven't deserved this, a child is given, a son is born, even us. And people have found this very, very difficult to take in. Some commentators, uncomfortable with the obvious implication of this, have suggested that these words are misunderstood, that they don't reply to this future king, Jesus, but rather to Hezekiah of Judah. That's the king that Isaiah must have been applauding. But apart from the fact that Hezekiah was already an adult when the Assyrians turned up, Why should Isaiah then call him wonderful? Well, he he wasn't that wonderful. He was a better man than many of us. But we're told that he tried to buy the Assyrians off by cycling off all of the gold from the temple. Besides, the word wonderful here means something specific. In Judges, we're told that Samson's parents have met someone who claimed to be an angel at one point and asking him his name, he replies, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? seeing that it is, he's saying, supernatural. Because this will be a counselor, someone whose plans and wisdom are of that supernatural sort. He will be the mighty God, El Gibor, the term never used of a human king in Scripture. This king will be unlike any other, someone who will not only have the plans and the wisdom of God, but the authority and the power of God to bring those plans about. The everlasting father, and father here in the Old Testament sense, not of one who sires children, but someone who makes a people his own people. And the prince of peace, someone who will have the authority to establish the peace of his government in justice, Isaiah says, and righteousness. In short, the only person who can resolve the crisis with God that each of us have. Someone who has lived the life that you and I should have lived and died the death by rights that we should have died. Jesus said this in John 8, quoting these words from Isaiah, speaking with this passage in mind, whoever follows me, he said, will not walk in darkness. They won't walk in that darkness that Isaiah was describing, but rather they will have the light of life. And it's fascinating, the Jews came back to him knowing what he was saying, remembering Isaiah And they said to him, who are you? And he replied, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. My guess is that God has been trying to tell some of us, perhaps many of us, who he is for a long, long time. Perhaps for many, many Christmases. And in our busyness, in our rebellion, and in our 
earnest desire to put it off to another day, in really our practical rejection of God. We don't mean to, perhaps, but that's what we've been doing. None of us can say that we've earned this. But any one of us, Isaiah is saying, can say that God has increased our joy and given us a new day if we will receive and serve the Son whom he has sent in Jesus. It's easy, isn't it, to let another Christmas go by without understanding that the gift, really, God's gift to us under the tree, is meant for us. The best gift we could ever receive. God rest ye, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. For Jesus Christ, our Savior, was born upon this day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Tidings of comfort and of joy.